Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. The party started last week when the gates finally opened after a two-year hiatus at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. Of course, Louisiana Eats was there, and in last week's show, we gave you a glimpse of what that moment meant to Jazz Fest vendors and friends. Don't worry if you missed it. All of our shows are always available for your listening pleasure at poppytooker.com. On this week's episode, our Jazz Fest festivities continue as we give you an insider's look at the food, fun, and feasting available there. Food director Michelle Nugent explains the nuts and bolts of making one of the greatest food festivals happen annually on an open field where horses race the rest of the year. Curious about that big open field? Louis Broussard, master electrician at the festival, has been hanging around the ground since childhood when his father worked as a horse groomer. He joins us with incredible tales of his father's fairgrounds farm and the meals his mother made from it, from squab to duck eggs. <laughs> you don't want to miss that. And I'm putting on a major party at the Food Heritage Stage this year. I'll tell you all about that and share the recipes too. It's all on the menu for this week's. Louisiana Eats. In April 1970, the very first New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival was held in Congo Square, drawing an audience of around 350 people. When the event was held the following year, attendance had grown by so much, it was clear a bigger space was needed. In 1972, Jazzfest moved to the fairgrounds race course, where it's continued to be held over the last 50 years. Opened in 1872, the fairgrounds is the third oldest racetrack in America. So, needless to say, there's a lot of history there. In the early days of Louisiana Eats, we featured a guest who had direct access to that history by the name of Louis Broussard. If you've attended Jazz Fest over the last 30 years, you may have seen Louis whipping around the track on a golf cart, ensuring electricity is properly flowing to food booths and sound stages alike. A master electrician, Lewis has worked the festival since 1988, but he's no newcomer to the fairgrounds. In fact, he just about grew up there. 
Lou joined us to share stories from his childhood spent in and around the racetrack. Uh, that was a lot of memorable days for me. I wish I can go back to them to tell you the truth. I had so much fun in that place. That was my playground. I can remember from maybe um, around seven or eight, I was out there hanging with my dad, and my mom came to visit, and he put me on this pony and sent me around the backside of the barn, and I come running around the back with the pony, and my mom almost fell out. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was your dad's job there? What did he do? He was a horse groom. He took care of uh, racehorses for certain people, and his main job was to take care of the Fairground Corporation racehorses. Your daddy had almost like a little mini farm out there, huh? He did. He had melaton, he had eggplant, tomatoes. He didn't grow very much okra, but the snap beans, beautiful. My mother couldn't wait to get her hands on them. There were some animals too, huh? Yes. We had two goats, one cow, <laughs> about 400 ducks, about 300 chickens, and a cage full of pigeons. Pigeons? Yes. Yep. You were eating the pigeons? We were eating the babies. <laughs> and my father would have me go into this loft and take them out of the nest just before they would come down on the ground and start eating. Because they would be so tender and beautiful then? Fat. <laughs> Buttery fat. So uh, I guess you would pick vegetables, and every day there was a regular bounty that your mom was cooking? Yes. I can remember going on my bicycle after school, going to the fairgrounds, and my dad had a big bag of whatever he would pick, and he'd tell me, when you go home, just make sure mom get it, you know. And it worked out fine. We ate good. We had plenty of chickens to eat, plenty of ducks to eat. So with all that delicious food that you were bringing home every day, what are some of the favorite things that your mom used to cook up for you? We would eat duck just about every Sunday. When she wanted to stew a hen, my dad didn't want to give up none of the girls. Oh. He loved his girls. And because they were egg producers, oh, too. Was huh? they? We had, oh, we also had a double yolk at that. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Beautiful eggs. So how did it go with the hen? Uh, they would go round and round, but my mom always win. <laughs> I wind up bringing the hen home sometime, too. <laughs> you know? And she would stew it up? Oh, yes. And you talk about fresh stewed hen, brown gravy with green peas in it, all the other little specials she would put in it. And her wonderful potato salad. You couldn't beat it. Oh, yum. What was uh, special about her potato salad? Eh, Mom just had the right technique. Oh, it's the, all in the, the hands. Flip of the wrist. Her spoon was <laughs> broke into it, I guess. <laughs> you know. Did she preserve anything? Did she can or put anything up? Not a thing. You were very seldom found leftovers in our refrigerator. Well, I, I loved the way you described to me that. You know, nowadays, um, we would call this a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture. And your dad was kind of running a little CSA there because he was raising so much food, he was sharing it. Would he was. Tell us about that. When it was time to harvest whatever vegetable or whatever he was growing, he would also prepare 
different bags for the people that worked in the general office of the fairgrounds. He would feed them also. And when we would when we would harvest ducks, oh, I would bring 12, 14 ducks already clean up at the general office for the people so they can have ducks and also the chickens and also the baby pigeons. And how long did this go on for? Oh, up to maybe 12, 14 years my father did that. What are some other things that you remember about raising that food, working with your dad, and hanging around the track? Okay. When the races would leave for the summer, the infield would grow wild and crazy. And then before the turf track came, there was a ditch. I used to catch crawfish in the ditch right there. <laughs> oh, gosh. Right at the stretch before the infield. There's two ponds there. The back pond, I used to catch yellow belly catfish. I'd catch two fish, bring them to my dad. He would send me to Taranova's grocery to get a po'boy bread, uh-huh. and that would be our lunch. <laughs> well, that is so amazing, Lou, to think about the fairgrounds and what a self-sustaining place that was. People thought that all that delicious eating at the fairgrounds started with the festival. <laughs> That's nope. been it's been going on, huh? Yes. And we've had a lot of good times out there. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come and share these delicious memories of a childhood at the racetrack. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I know if my father was alive, he would too. Louis Broussard, Jazz Fest Master Electrician sharing tales of his home away from home at the New Orleans Fairgrounds. In my younger days, I wish I know then like I know now. In my younger days, I wish I know then like I know now. Coming up next, We go back to the early days of the Food Heritage Stage with the help of Steve Armbruster and the Jazz Fest Archives. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, 
made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Frank Brightson of Brightson's Restaurant. Thank you. 1998 Jazz Festival. Now, I'm going to do a dish today for you that I think is representative of the type of food that we do at Brightson's and also the flavors and, and dishes that I love. Chef and Frank Brightson and I agree. Our favorite cooking demo of the year is always on the food heritage stage at Jazz Fest. Since it started in 1989, chefs from New Orleans and beyond have wowed visitors with their cooking demonstrations. Here's a sampling of some of the voices over those 30 years. I'd like to say, first of all, that I think you people, and I can tell by looking at you, are the smartest, best-looking, luckiest people on the whole planet to be here today. Because you're in the best place. Great food, great music, great people. And uh, we're going to have nothing but fun. Here's Frank Brightston back in 1998. Consummate entertainer that he is, every second of Frank's demos were solid gold. Uh, we're going to cook catfish today. Now, you've had catfish, I know. Everybody eats catfish. But you ain't never had it like this. You know, when I create a dish, I try to build certain uh, components or characteristics into it so that you have an interesting dish. Um, you know, food, unlike many other arts or, or crafts, is something that touches you. I mean, you, you get touched so many ways. You know, it's so physical, it's so emotional, it's so mental, and it's so pleasurable. And, and, and smell is certainly a part of that. Uh, visual, the presentation of a dish is certainly important. And of course, the eating part of it is the best, too. Anybody who's just joined us, this is Lucy Mike King. She's a strawberry farmer from Hammond, Louisiana. She's I a strawberry farmer. I'm, I've been growing strawberries since I was five years old, and I'm going to be 79. It's not just chefs who graced the food heritage stage at Jazz Fest. One mainstay was strawberry farmer Mrs. Lucy Mike, who always appeared there both weekends. Miss Lucy Mike was one of a kind. I used to grow about 10 acres. Now I have a half an acre. Half an acre. Because I do all the work myself. I do everything except the tractor work. I dig the ditches and everything. One man came with a big station wagon. He had a 12-foot ladder on the station wagon. I said, sir, what are you going to do with that ladder? He says, I am going to get on it, and I am going to pick the biggest and the sweetest strawberry on the tree. <laughs> I told him, sir, we don't pick strawberries like that. He said, well, how do you pick them? I told him, you put your head to the ground, and you fan it to the sun. Time marches on, the young get old and the old get cold. Time marches on, nothing lasts forever. Time marches on. That muffled voice you hear is none other than Austin Leslie, one of the greatest Creole chefs of all time, 
renowned for his restaurant, Shea Helene. Now see how easy that was? That's like a piece of cake. Austin was a New Orleans icon, never seen without his signature captain's hat and bushy mutton chop sideburns. To paraphrase John T. Edge, if you were looking to portray what New Orleans cooking was, there were two chefs, Paul Prudhomme and Austin Leslie. I love you. <laughs> we'll end with this one last clip to give you a taste of Austin Leslie's sense of humor. I tell you what, I'm going to tell y'all a pretty clean joke, since y'all want to hear some jokes. I know y'all didn't ask for them, though. Now, Worcestershire sauce, you know how they got this name, Worcestershire sauce? Fella was eating, and he didn't know how to name what he wants, so he said, what is this year's sauce? And they gave it a name, Worcestershire sauce. Don't that make sense? Now don't ask me another thing how much I put in you, so watch me now. You see what I'm doing, eh? Everybody see what I'm doing, so there's no secret, there's no voodoo voodoo here now, don't tell me. years of the food heritage stage at Jazz Fest. But how did it come to be? To get the answer to that question, we turn to our next guest. I am Francisco Della... No, <laughs> you want my real name. My name is Steve Armbruster. Long before he began his career as an attorney at law, Steve Armbruster was a man who wore many hats in his New Orleans life. He co-founded Tipitinas in 1977 and worked at WWOZ Radio. In the 1980s, he had jobs in fine dining kitchens at Upper Line, the Roosevelt, and lost local restaurant Christian's. Midway through the decade, he began regularly feeding Jazz Fest staff, doing the build-out at the fairgrounds. All of these incarnations of Steve Armbruster made him uniquely qualified to bring a new stage to the festival, the food heritage stage, where New Orleans cooks could talk about food and demonstrate it. Steve explains the origins of these food stages and how he got started. The very first food and heritage stage was exactly 20 years after it started. It was for the 20th festival, which was 1989. Three or four or five years before that, I forget exactly how many, I signed on to help tag Richardson and the crew that would put up the tents, build the stages, to just be a general laborer. I thought it would be fun. I thought it would make a little extra money. I liked the festival. They quickly realized, like after about one day, that I knew how to cook. They remembered that I'd been cooking. So at that time, believe it or not, everybody who would work to build the stages would just leave the grounds to go get lunch. They would, you know, hop in their trucks and they'd go off to get poor boys a Popeye's fried chicken and, you know, a couple of Barks root beers later and a heavy lunch they would come dragging back into the fairgrounds and slowly but surely, you know, try to get back on track. And Tag and others realized, you know, that was a pretty inefficient way to, you know, run a crew. And wouldn't it be more fun and wouldn't it be better if I would just cook for everybody? 
So I started cooking for the production crew, the yard crew. And I did it sort of um, on, a, on a shoestring by, you know, hook and fly. <laughs> I would maybe set up a barbecue pit out there, or I would cook some things in my house, which was close by. I lived on Grand Route St. John. And I had an old Volkswagen. I would take the back seat out and lay the back flap down. So I might cook a pot of beans, make a salad, have some bread. I would put it in the back of my Volkswagen. I would drive over there, and everybody would see my Volkswagen coming onto the track, and they'd drop their hammers, and they'd run over to wherever I happened to park that day, which was under one of the trees or table, and we'd have lunch. The Volkswagen dinner bell, huh? Yeah, there you go. (laughs) By any means necessary, we fed everybody who was there. How many people are we talking about in those days? 14, 15 at the beginning, 20, 25, to 50 or 60 or 70 during the, the week before. It was the perfect job because... I didn't have to do anything during the festival itself because then everybody could get food from the vendors. And also, I knew everybody by then, so you know, I was you know, welcome anywhere. Yeah, you were a big was, man on campus. Yeah, they liked me. I'd been feeding them. <laughs> and so anyway, so that's, that's one way that I got to know all of the people who were at the fairgrounds and how they got to know me in relation to food. And I did that for a couple of years, and then they decided that they wanted to do this food heritage stage in 1989 for the 20th anniversary. So So they suggest to you, hey, Steve, can you help us out? Because you seem to be able to do everything else you can think of. So what did you do? Well, the idea was to get the food vendors who are out there to come to the tent and talk about the food that they were serving out there. The producers of the, of the festival did want to educate people about this food of which they were very justly proud. Tell us about that first year, because things didn't turn out so well because you schedule somebody, but the line at the booth got too long, huh? So the first Food and Heritage stage was under a tent, and it was back towards what would be you know, the Acura stage now by that pond. The tent was just to the left of it. And the idea was to have a lot of the food vendors. A lot of them would send word, you know, I really can't leave my booth. I'm really busy. Mm-hmm. The folks that I've, I've hired here, they don't want me to leave. They get nervous if... I'm out of sight, or I get nervous when I have to leave them. So I stocked up a variety of you know different sorts of food things, you know, like red beans and rice and pickled meat to have on hand. So sometimes I would just improvise a demonstration of you know how to make shrimp stuff melaton or, you know, shrimp stuffed peppers. So in addition to food vendors, because that was the original thought, how did um, the first chefs sneak into the food heritage stage? I knew chefs because I 
worked as a chef myself. I knew some chefs like Susan Spicer from before either of us ever cooked. The first time I met Susan Spicer, she was working for a printing company on Julia Street between Chartist and St. Charles. And I was working at Tipitina's. It was the year we started Tipitina's. And we would go down there to get posters printed. I pressed her into service, and she was glad to do it. And Frank Brightson. Some of the chefs, though, from, you know, your more so-called prestigious or, you know, establishment restaurants, even at that time thought of the jazz festival as something of a of a fringe operation or a, you know a countercultural irrelevant production or something that you know, just didn't really relate to what they were doing and they just weren't really interested or maybe they just didn't want to give their secrets or something so like that. fascinating to think that they had no idea that one day that little fringe festival would actually account for such a huge percentage of their yeah. annual business. Yeah, and they should have realized it even then, and of course some of them did. So Frank came, and, and Susan came, and I'm, I'm not sure who all else came, but I think I, I did press a few other folks into service. Well, with your long, long vision of all this, did you ever think it would become what it is? I mean, it's such an institution. It really is fun, for a lot of reasons. One reason is because everybody loves to eat. And everybody in Louisiana, it seems, is very passionate about their food, and they all think that they have the best recipe for gumbo or griots, or they know how to grill better than anybody else, or they think that their food is almost as good as Frank Brightson's, but that maybe if they go and listen to him, they can do a little industrial spying and pick up some tips. So people, you know, they're curious about food. And they like talking about it and they like listening to it. And I think that people who come from out of town see these names on the tops of the food booths, Cochon de Lay, and they wonder about it, and they taste some of the food, and they want to learn a little bit more, so, you know, they go. I think, you know, of course, some people just go to the stage because it's air-conditioned, it's inside, and there's free food. And there's free food. You can't beat that. That's true. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for having this conversation You're with welcome. Us. That was Steve Armbruster, Food Heritage Stage Instigator. Welcome to the city where people like to eat. Music, 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 you can't resist the beat. Lots of food to lay there, like you never seen. What's new and interesting at Food Heritage this year? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back.
I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What's new and interesting at this year's Food Heritage Stage? For Food Heritage regulars, you're already familiar with what an oasis that spot in the grandstand can be. There's air conditioning and great bathrooms. You know how important that is at the fest. And the food is always great. But Jazz Fest 2022 is bringing a real first to the stage. It's been two years in the making, like much of Jazz Fest planning since the pandemic derailed the whole event. My buddy, Food Fest director Michelle Nugent, blocked a double spot. That's two full hours of programming in order to bring drag queen brunch to the food heritage stage. While I discuss the history of the brunch and whip up Madame Begay's stuffed eggs and savory pan do with Creole tomato jam, my number one brunch queens, Laveau Contraire and Debbie with a D, will perform to the crowd. Yes, Virginia, there will be drag queens performing at the 2022 Jazz and Heritage Festival. With Bloody Marys, and perhaps a mimosa or two, or three, from the nearby bar in the paddock area, we'll be whipping the crowd into a frenzy. A hungry frenzy, that is. But if you can't be there, don't fret. We're taking lots of photos to post on poppytooker.com, along with the recipes for Madame Begay's famous eggs and that savory pan pear do. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Drag Queen Brunch at the 2022 Jazz Fest guarantees some good Louisiana Eats. Hi, my name is Michelle Nugent, and I'm the food director at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. 
As Jazz Fest's food director, Michelle Nugent is in charge of an operation that works year-round to be able to transform the fairgrounds infield into one of the city's most massive outdoor food destinations. With scores of vendors serving hundreds of thousands of festival goers over two weekends, Michelle has to ensure that everything from permits to staff meals to infrastructure are squared away well in advance. Which is why on pre-production days, you'll find her on her trusty golf cart working from pre-dawn to dusk. So let's start with the golf cart since you mentioned that. I have a custom toolbox that I put on the back of it um, that I can lock up and you can find anything on there from blue paint tape to sharp scissors to a cold bottle of water. (laughs) Um, Because I never know where I'm going to be. It's such a huge festival site that... I don't want to have to think about it. I just want to be able to reach in my tackle box and pull it out. I outfit myself in the same way. I have a gear belt that I wear all day, every day that has scissors and all kinds of stuff on it. On a pre-production day, we're pretty much just getting the vendors loaded in and just getting everything built, making sure the stage is all ready to go. Some of my favorite times are at the end of a pre-production day when things are starting to get quiet And I get in my golf cart, you know, get a fresh cold bottle of water and a notepad and just kind of take your time and wander through and check it all out and see what happened and what needs to go on the next day. And the baby geese are there and (laughs) the hawks are flying around your head and the sun is setting. It's just it's beautiful. It's just it's a nice place to work. On paper. Michelle has been working at Jazz Fest for just over 20 years. But as she explained to us, her first gig there was a little further back in time. I did a piece of the job in 1986 before I ran away and joined the Susan Spicer Circus (laughs) and learned how to cook and spent almost 20 years in kitchens. So when I was finally offered the job in 1999, it was kind of perfect. I've always done production work. I've always loved to do production work. I worked in most of the music clubs in town and with a bunch of the bands and did some television and all kinds of stuff. And then I cooked for a long time. So it it was perfect. And when I got there, things were set up a little differently. And so I've just kind of grown into it and turned it into the, the way I think it should be, whether that's right or wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle, Out on the festival ground, somehow, people turn out plates of food that look like they're being served in a white tablecloth restaurant. There's no peanuts and cotton candy at Jazz Festival. Let's talk about the foods, the variety, and the complexity. Well, there are peanuts, don't forget. (laughs) (laughs) There's even popcorn in the kids' area and at one of the snowball stands. But to take your point... We have a vendor that produces a plate that has a handmade crepe stuffed with crawfish, an an oyster patty, which is a New Orleans classic. It's a piece of puff pastry with a beautiful oyster stew in it, and then a crawfish beignet, all on one plate, all handmade, perfectly cooked, hot and fresh every minute. It's amazing. It's just remarkable. I don't know how the vendors accomplish it. It's really kind of fairy dust. (laughs) Well, for one thing, you provide them with an incredible space. There's running water. 
Yeah, we have we have a pretty serious infrastructure. Every food area has a field kitchen with hot running water and a real place to wash your dishes. We have six 52-foot refrigeration trucks that we manage ourselves that the vendors take use of, which we have to actually go to a lot of lengths to set up and put shelving in. And then I go on 24-hour call, and we, we manage them the whole time. So the festival does a lot of work to provide them a good, safe, clean place to work. And sometimes it rains. <laughs> Let's let's the word about... we try to never say. <laughs> well, it's been heroic some of the things I've seen pulled off in the rain too, but tell us about some of the challenges that you've experienced cuz my goodness, you've had rainstorms where the water came up in the booths. Well, and sometimes we have to turn the electricity off for a minute and people stand on boxes and the weirdest phenomena is when the weather is really inclement, we sell more food. I don't know if it's because people don't want to stand in front of the stages or what exactly happens, but the food vendors actually get busy. So very rarely do we have to stop selling, but we kind of have to go into extra special pay attention mode when we have to shut the electricity off just to make sure that we're maintaining all our temperatures and that everything is safe. But we actually get busier. It's really weird. But everybody's just told right off the bat, if you don't have a pair of rain boots, go get some. Don't even show up without them. Put them in your car, and hopefully you won't need them. But we don't stop. We work in the rain. It's what we do. There's such a diversity of music um, that appeals to different age groups, and sometimes you'll be uh, th- there'll be more of a certain crowd at the festival one day than the next. Do the vendors ever find that the different kinds of crowds attract uh, different interest in the foods? Is there ever any correlation? Absolutely. Or- <laughs> um, it, it really just depends. If if we have a, a, a Latin crowd that day, then the, the you know the food that's tilted that way, we sell more of that. If we have a really heavy College crowd. We sell lots of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. No way. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> it's pretty interesting how that works out. You know, you have been doing this job now for over 20 years, working with a lot of the same people. Tell me about the relationships you've formed with the vendors and the relationships that the vendors have with each other. It's kind of like a big family out there in a lot of ways, isn't it? Absolutely, which means that it it's all the joy and love and greatness that you have with family, and then it's also the same kind of weirdnesses that you have with family. <laughs> so when the food booths are Full tilt boogie on a Saturday afternoon. It's somewhere around 1,600 people, maybe a little more. So that's a lot of folks. And it's hot, and they're in a hurry, and they're working really hard, and they really don't have time to stop and think. So it gets to the point where it's on autopilot, and one of the things that the festival and the vendors are very good at is we're able to solve problems really quickly. We're really good at that. Oh, yes, you are. Um, and like you said, most of the vendors have been there longer than I have, and we, we pride ourselves on that because what they do is extraordinary. It's, it's unlike any other food festival. And it's very specialized what they do. And a lot of the food you can't find anywhere else in the city except for those days at the festival. 
What is your most magical memory? What, what's the thing that sticks with you? I'm going to say this just because I had this, I relived this moment today at our press conference. So this one's very fresh. Irma Thomas came and sang for us today at the press conference and the year after the storm when we weren't really sure we were going to have a show. I happened to be backstage at the Acura stage, which I'm barely ever back there. And it was time for Irma to perform. And it the heavens opened up and it started pouring. And she just impromptu started singing It's Raining. <laughs> and there wasn't a dry eye in the house, no pun intended. <laughs> oh. Oh, gives me goosebumps. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> it's raining so hard. Look like it's going to rain all night. And this is the time I love to be holding you tight. Michelle Nugent food director of the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. The fact that you're not here I wish tonight would hurry up and in the deal It's raining so hard It's really coming down Sitting by my window Watching the rain fall to the ground My name is Judy Burks and I've been cooking red beans at the Jazz Festival since 1974. And I'm Morris Douglas, and um, I've been with Judy since probably 1979. Judy Burke's Red Beans booth has been woven into the very fabric of Jazz Fest. She's been stirring her pot at the festival for over 40 years. We were honored to be invited to Judy's house to talk with Judy and her red bean partner, Morris Douglas. I fell in love with the Jazz Fest in 1973. It was my first Jazz Fest, although it wasn't the first Jazz Fest. It was the first one at the fairgrounds. And so I proposed that my boyfriend at the time and I had a great black beans recipe, and we would try our black beans. There were not a lot of people who were kind of wanting to do that. Nobody was sure whether it was going to be profitable. And in fact, in uh, my first year, we broke even. So you started off with the black beans. Right. Because there already were red beans at the festival. Right. And Buster Holmes was the red beans guy. So after year one, I got a phone call from the Jazz Fest and they said, Buster Holmes doesn't want to do anything but 100 pounds of beans. And he has a restaurant to run and he wants to fix that and get out. And there are lines of people wanting red beans. And we know that, that you all know how to cook black beans, so do you think you could start doing red beans instead? Mars, what are your earliest memories? So well, you're in high school oh when goodness. you start out there. Well, what happened is Judy started doing it, and I says, I want to help. I want to come. Morris started high school at Rob Wynn, and I started teaching at Rob Wynn, teaching art. Oh my and gosh. he was one of my students. Right. So I was looking for up-and-coming sort of energetic youngsters to um, have come out and work in the booth. And he, of course, was the number one choice. So I, I started working with Judy, and, and I was a booth person in the front, you know. Come on over. Come on. Come on. 
And he never wanted to work in the kitchen because he's a people person. He wanted to be out there, you know, introducing himself and talking to people. But eventually I talked him into coming into the kitchen and working. Then several years passed and, you know, I got older and I said, you know, I want to be your partner. I want to be your partner. Just saying it, you know, uh-huh. just saying it. And finally that happened. Good we sex. became partners, me, Judy, and my sister, Pam. Now, you all cook in 75-pound batches. Yes. If you had to guess, how many pounds every year on average do you think you use? Probably 1,500 pounds during the festival. The recipe involves a lot of, um, well, I can't tell you. <laughs> no. You're not going to no. tell y'all a secret. No, but no you don't have to. But we use um, good sausage and lots of ham and uh, lots of white pepper, black pepper, red pepper. But I would say for the last maybe 20 years, we've stuck with our proven formula for making these beans. Yeah, we haven't changed. Yeah, we haven't yeah. changed. I think there's a lot of people who have this mistaken idea that being a Jazz Fest vendor is like getting Willy Wonka's golden ticket, you know? One of the things about being out there is you really are taking your chance. It's weather-based yeah. kind of event. I can tell you it's not a gold mine. It's, it's a nice gig, and it's fun to do. We get together with the same people that we've known for all these years, and we know them for that brief period of time, the two weeks that we work together, and it's as if we've never been apart. I mean, we, you pick know, we, we pick up where we left yeah. off. We help each other. Um, we see their kids grow up and work in the booth who started off being this tall are now adults, yeah. you know. What is your favorite moment every year at the fest? I remember going out when the festival had um, those old-fashioned tents that were more like circus tents that were spread around in the center of the field, and they wouldn't mow the clover. They would just install the, the tents and, and you'd walk out there early in the morning and they would be dew everywhere. And one of my favorite times was when somebody was doing a sound check and in the midst of the clover and the old tents, they played Aaron Neville singing Amazing Grace. It was, it was really a wonderful moment. I want to tell you my favorite move-in day. And you move in and then you get to see everybody you haven't seen for the last year all of the other vendors, and I like that. You know, you get that little feeling that we, we got this two weeks together, you know, and then the next favorite moment is opening day. You said it, you, you're in there before everybody, and, you know, you're anticipating, and uh, it's a special feeling. It really is. That was the Red Bean Queen, Judy Burks, and Morris Douglas. 2022 marks their 46th year catering to Jazz Fest crowds. Oh, 
that's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.